Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. My name is Sandy Docker, and I'm taking over today from your usual host, Danny V. And I am so excited because I get to speak to an amazing author joining us all the way from the States, Martha Hall Kelly. Welcome, Martha. Thanks for having me, Sandy. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Now, Martha is the author of Epic Historical fiction. Uh, the Lilac Girls, set during World War II, which sold 1.5 million copies and spent over a year on the New York Times bestseller list. Lost Roses, set during World War I, and now The Sunflower Sisters, set during the American Civil War. So thank you for joining us today, Martha, and we're going to talk about your newest work of historical fiction, The Sunflower Sisters. Before we get started, can you just give us a very brief summary of what the novel is about? Sure. Uh, if people know me from Lilac Girls, this book is about Caroline Faraday's great-grandmother, Jane Eliza's family during the civil, the American Civil War. And Jane Eliza was an unbelievable woman. Um, she not only had eight children that she brought up by herself, uh, she was a staunch abolitionist. And this book features her daughter, Georgiana, and um, also two other characters, an enslaved girl, Gemma, and who um, is enslaved on a tobacco plantation in Maryland in the US. And uh, the third character is Anne May Wilson Watson, who is a plantation mistress and um, owns Gemma. And they are three amazing women, and we're going to delve into them um, shortly. Now, this book had me gasping and holding my breath 
and laughing out loud, which I wasn't expecting, I have to say. Oh, <laughs> and I, I had didn't know where you were laughing. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and I have so many questions, and I'm going to try to be a good host and stick to time, but I can't guarantee it because this book really does deserve to be talked about. Now, as you said, you um, tell the story through three women, and they're all very formidable each in their own way. And I want to start there. And and let's start with Georgie, Georgie Wolseley. And she is, as you said, a historical figure, part of a very well-to-do New York abolitionist family. And she casts aside convention uh, to join the ranks of the first female nurses during the Civil War. And she is, as you said, one of seven sisters, eight siblings um, she has. What was it about Georgie in particular, out of all of the sisters, that wanted you to to tell her story instead of one of them? That's a great question because all seven sisters were unbelievably accomplished. Yeah. So smart and well ahead of their time. Their mother uh, made sure they were all really well educated and they spoke their mind, uh, which was really unusual for that time period. But I loved that well, first of all, she was the middle daughter, and so am I. So I think I kind of related to that. You know, you okay. kind of get yeah, lost yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff a little bit. But I, I read all of their letters to each other, and that was kind of like it, in their day, it was their emails. Mm-hmm. And there were a thousand letters in the basement of Caroline Faraday's house in Connecticut, and I read them all. And each one, you know, I got to know them just from their handwriting and their sense of humor. And Georgie, I just kind of took to her. She's very funny. And, you know, I was afraid I I didn't want to write a book that was not relevant to today. And I felt like right away, I knew that the sisters were relevant in terms of their sense of humor. It felt like modern day in many ways. So, but I also love that she uh, broke the rules. She was not 30 years old. Um, and, and you were supposed to be in order to be a nurse back then. It was the very beginning of nurses in this country. And she also was not, um, you were not supposed to be attractive. Um, for some reason, they didn't want, uh, you know, anyone attractive around the men. They thought it would mm-hmm. um, disrupt things. And she, I think, was very beautiful. Uh, So she wanted to be a nurse and she was so determined. She also started one of, uh, or the first nursing school in the United States, which is now part of Yale. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I just loved everything about her. And uh, it it wasn't that much of a contest, really. I I knew it had to be her. It's interesting that you said that... um she and her sisters are relevant to today. And that's one of the things that really struck me was just how ahead of her time she was. She wasn't afraid to put those doctors in their place, which would have been unheard of for a woman in those days. And um, I could see her today fighting the fight for women just as much as she was back then. Absolutely. I I would think that they would all be in politics. Um, Somebody said that the Woolsey women, when they gave up toys, they took up politics. So I like, I like to think that they'd all be, um, you know, in Congress or something. Uh, But yeah, they did. They, they pushed the boundaries for sure. All the sisters did uh, back during the civil war. And 
you know, they, they suffered in a way for it because, uh, you know, you weren't in society, you weren't supposed to do those kind of things. And her sister, Mary, I don't know if you remember from the book. Yes, um, yes, the poet. One of my favorite characters. I I cried more writing Mary than any other character ever. And Mary was a, a, a really accomplished poet. And every soldier brought in his pocket, North and South brought her poetry into battle because it talked about dying and meeting God. Mm-hmm. And um, she was not allowed to say that she wrote that. And it, she wrote it anonymously, but once it became a hit, she was not allowed to say that she wrote it because she was a woman. So, I, you know, there, there was a lot of, um, it was just unfair in a lot of ways. And, and I think that is shown in the male nurses and how horribly they treated these sanitary commission nurses that came in and the doctors, of course, she says in her letters, uh, she not one doctor treated her well. No, and and Except I think for the one that she married, maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe he did. Um, and we see that today, even that dynamic between doctors and nurses in our hospital systems today. I don't know if it's the same in America as it is here in Australia, but there is a very different power dynamic between them. Obviously, we do have female doctors now and lots of male nurses as well, but there is still that um, that dynamic between you know, what was traditionally a male role and traditionally a female role, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to think they would have been the doctors if it were today. Yeah. Oh, she would make a great doctor. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I also think they really loved being nurses. And even though they were carrying out the doctor's orders, they did it. They were really necessary. I, I think the doctors appreciated them tremendously. Uh, but they just didn't show it in a way, you know, like that we would appreciate. There was a moment early on in the book where she decides to write a handbook to nursing, a guide to nursing, and she writes two copies of it. Obviously, they didn't have printing presses, you know, on the battlefields and they didn't have photocopiers like we do today. Um, So she wrote, hand wrote two copies of this um, nursing guide and showed it to one of the doctors and he published it as his own. Is that part of true history? It actually happened. Yes. She went back and uh, wrote her own later and her sister did as well because her sister Jane was a nurse as well. But yeah, that actually happened. And, you know, back then there was nothing, you had no recourse. No. And it was just so unfair. Yeah. And when she tries to get a loan to set up the nursing school, the bank um, manager says, well, you need a male to sign with you. So there was no power at all for these women, was there? No, not at all. And the men really liked it that way. She worked her way around it. And I think that's because of her mother. Her mother always uh, just raised all of her daughters to to really be strong. And from from Eliza Woolsey, everything came. Absolutely. She was quite a strong woman herself. um, And we get to know her a fair bit during the novel as well. Now, one of the other women whose journey we follow is, as you mentioned earlier, Gemma, and she is a slave girl living on a tobacco plantation. And I found Gemma to be just this amazingly drawn character of total strength and absolute fragility at the same time. Oh, I love that. (laughs) She was just 
you know, she had the sass of she's going to break free and then she would get beaten almost to death. And while there is a lot of her story that was exceptionally confronting in what she had to put up with, she, I found, was also the source of great beauty within the story in terms of how much hope she carried with her and the way that she sees and describes the world around her despite the hardships that she's facing. And I wanted to ask you, Martha, was this deliberate of you to show such contrasting light and shade within the one character? Well, I always like to make my characters uh, both have, have positive and negative things about them, flaws, but also uh, make them interesting and um, compelling. So I guess, yes, but I love the way that you uh, articulated that. But, but I do feel like she was another powerless character. Um, not, not that Georgie was powerless, but she was in a, a situation where she didn't have any power and she had to figure that out. And I do think that that is the way a lot of women feel today. I know I do sometimes. And I, I kind of gave that to Gemma and she works her way out of it though. She's really smart. I, I think that it, being enslaved at, at that time um, was the ultimate not having power, but mm. she, she, um, I, I, I think the fact that she can read and write and Anne May who owns her cannot, and May can only read, mm -hmm. um, it sets up an interesting dynamic because Anne May um, forces her to write some things for her that um, potentially could get them both in a lot of trouble. Some, um, uh, I don't want to give too many spoilers. No, that's but, um, but I do think that that, um, how she gets out of that situation <clears throat> shows how, how smart and resourceful Gemma is. I, I love her as a character. I loved all of the characters in her world. Uh, that was a, she was a lot of fun to write. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of fun, but as I said, it, as a reader, it was very confronting, I found, when we go into the dark parts of her life. Because I found that, you know, while we know the history of that period of time in the United States, and we might read historical texts about how the black slaves were treated, and we've probably seen movies about it as well. I think there's, oh, some, yeah. there's something different, though, in A, reading it in a book from a person who feels very real to us as a real person. And seeing it through her eyes, not as a lesson to be taught in a history class. And I think you can go a lot deeper through prose than you can on film. So we don't see the horrors like we would in a film, for example, but to feel what she goes through um, in her hardships, it, it was incredibly confronting at times, I found. Really? Yeah. I just, which parts, which did, parts did you feel confronting? I, I mean, I agree with you. I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, you know, the beatings that she took and the vinegar that they would pour on her, you know, and while I might see that on a film, I can probably turn away from it if mm -hmm. I'm watching it on a film. But where, when you're reading it on the page and you're getting into all of her senses, the smell and the touch and the and everything that comes with it, it makes it a lot more real, I think. And the emotions of what she goes through when things are happening yeah. to her family 
and mm. friends. Um, oh, it's so hard. I really yeah. wanted to show what it was honestly like. And I did the same thing with my other books and Lilac Girls, for example, because a lot of people have read that. Um, some people say, oh, it's so hard to read about a concentration camp. But I really believe if, if you don't do justice to that and make it really feel like, I, I think that's what's interesting about a novel is mm. that you can take someone right there and it's not always good. And um, I've read some books that have concentration camps in them and it's like going to a strip mall or something, you know, it doesn't really feel real. So I really wanted to make in all three books, make the experience real because then when the, from the first person point of view, when you get out of that situation as a reader mm -hmm. and as that character, you feel like you've overcome something. And I think that especially with slavery, um, you know, I really wanted to show from Anne May's point of view, what was it like to own a human? I mean, mm -hmm. we look at that nowadays mm -hmm. and go, oh, it was terrible. But then it, it was acceptable. I mean, she was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, mm -hmm. where it was a very normal thing. So, and also from Gemma's point of view, I wanted to really show what that felt like to be enslaved and owned by someone else. And I think, unfortunately, you know, for the reader, you need to go through that. I really believe uh, what it really feels like. And uh, it's it seems like people, I, I know it's a weird thing to kind of like when you're reading, but I, I think people are appreciating that, which I'm really happy about. Yeah, oh, I absolutely appreciated it. And I felt like I was there with Gemma. Um, which was just, uh, I was going to say fantastic. That's the wrong word <laughs> to use. Um, but I did feel like I was going through it with her. And I often say that I think history should be taught through novels rather than through textbooks because we have that. I agree. We have yeah. that connection with the feeling of what happened because facts on a page just don't do that for you. They are using it in uh, classrooms here, which is really nice. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah I'm so pleased, so pleased to hear that. And with Gemma, it would have been so easy to characterise her as a victim, given everything that she goes through and, and, and purely by the nature of the situation that she's in. But she's not a victim at all. She's, she's quite the hero in a, in a subtle way, I think. Do you, oh, I'm so glad to, to hear that. I, I really wanted to give her equal weight to the other characters. Because yeah. it would have been easy to make Georgie kind of the star of the show. Mm. But I really think that Gemma deserves uh, top billing because she overcomes so much. And I really wanted to also show that she kind of pushes back at the Woolsey women too, who tend to be a little bit full charge, um, you know, along with being empowered uh, woman, the Woolseys also, you know, kind of pushed the boundaries of taking over Gemma's life and trying to push her into doing certain things. You know, she makes bonnets and does all this creative stuff. And I think the Woolseys get a little too pushy with her. And so she pushes back on that, yeah. which I think is really good. Um, you know, she has to navigate a whole new world. I mean, she ate with an oyster shell for her whole life um, mm -hmm. as a utensil. And she has to learn how to navigate the world. And I, I think in some ways we can relate to that these days. Um, 
you know, we're all emerging here from COVID. I know that mm-hmm. Australia didn't um, have it quite as badly, but no. um, I feel like we're all kind of dealing with a whole new world right now. And she emerges into that. She comes to New York City from a plantation where she spent her whole life. And I just love the way that she kind of comes out of her chrysalis that way. She does. She does. And the third woman that we see the story through is, as you've mentioned, Anne May. She's the owner of the tobacco plantation and Jem's owner as well. And I found her a really interesting character because, I mean, let's face it, she's a pretty vile person on the surface. Yes. Um, she doesn't behave particularly well. And yet no. she she gave me some of the best laugh out loud moments that I had during. Really? I, yes, she did. Like, I, like, you have to tell me. I don't know. This may be more of a reflection on me. I don't know. But <laughs> I, found, I found her snarky observations and her descriptions hilarious. You know, there was a point where she described somebody as a grown up fat tadpole of a man. And oh, I just. forgot about that. Yes. You know, little things like that that had me laughing out loud and and I read half of the book as a paperback you know in bed at night time and then I would also listen to it on audiobook when I've been you know doing the school run and things and so I'd be oh, sitting in the that. car and I'd like laugh out loud and the other school mums <laughs> are looking at me <laughs> okay oh, just a book <laughs> so I, I actually found her quite hilarious which I shouldn't have done because she is this vile person but she's not a caricature it would have been very easy to send her into a caricature of you know the southern bell the the slave owner Mm -hmm. but if you look more closely at her there's a lot going on apart from the cruelty that she shows to her slaves and the fact that she gets you know caught spying on the north for the south and I wanted to ask you how you made sure she didn't become a caricature well I did a lot of research on well on all three characters, but um, I really loved researching uh, the kind of, as you call them, Southern Belle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I did really want to make her different. Um, She has a lot of the qualities of, I think, a typical Southern Belle in terms of caring about her appearance. And Mm -hmm. that was really fascinating, um, researching what they did um, to appear so beautiful all the time mm-hmm. um I don't know if you remember her mom would put steak on her face yes I mean, slept with many... thin slices of steak exactly you remember you're such Ooh. a close <laughs> thin slices of steak they would put on their face and god knows maybe that was like early collagen or something but um they did all sorts of crazy things um beauty wise and mm-hmm. Emma, as a house slave, had to, of course, help her with her toilette. And, um, you know, she had blonde hair, but that was uh, supposedly um, ugly. You Mm. you know, the beauty standard was darker hair. So she had to dye her hair with all sorts of awful things. But anyway, so that part of it was fascinating. Finding out about the hoop skirts and how dangerous they were and they would be set on fire. And um, so that was fascinating, but also just um, what it was like to have a a plantation. She was Mm -hmm. very young. She was in her early twenties and she inherited the place. Her aunt Tandy Rose had um, willed it to her, but um, aunt Tandy wanted the slaves to be freed. But of course she, and they had other plans and, um, I I think that that was the interesting part was what it was like to run a plantation 
which requires a lot of uh, physical labor on the part of slaves, um, how to how to run it when your husband goes off to war. Mm. And uh, she just was not cut out for that. And of course, she has a sister, Euphemia, who was one of my favorite characters. I she was her. gorgeous. Yeah. But I felt like, and long suffering. I mean, she was so mean to Euphemia. But then when you meet Anne May's mom, mm. you kind of understand, uh, Zaretha, you, you understand how Anne May got that way because the apple didn't far fall from the tree. Okay. No, no, it didn't at all. Now, these are the three women who drive the story and the way that you intertwine their three threads was beautifully done. And we can't really go into that because that will head us into spoiler territory if, if we oh, discuss right. how they come together, you know, towards right. the end. Um, right. did, as, a, as a writer, did you know how those three storylines were going to come together when you started writing? Or was that something that came to you during the process? You know, I, I learned from Lilac Girls that I have to do an outline. Um, mm. You know, there's cancers, people yes. that write in the seat of their, seat of their pants, and there's yep. plotters. I had to become a plotter because with historical fiction, for me anyway, uh, that's why Lilac Girls took me so long to write, is I kept having to throw scenes and chapters out because they didn't quite fit the right slots. Mm -hmm. So um, I did know basically what was going to happen. Um, I can't really say what it is because it's a spoiler, but yep. you know, it's, it's based on a true story too. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Georgiana, certain things happened in, in her life that were true that I, I needed to stay to. And um, you know, the war of course had a certain outcome. So I did have to stay to that. Uh, but her, um, Anne May's journey in particular did evolve more mm -hmm. as the other ones were written. So it was kind of fun to keep her uh, looser and, mm -hmm. and kind of discover what happened to her as she went on. Because she really is a piece of work, as they say. And mm -hmm. it was kind of fun to let her kind of roam a little bit and do bad things. And New York especially was fun. Yes. I would like to have followed her through that in real time. That would have been quite oh, interesting. <laughs> that kind of Southern Belle in New York City thing was yeah. interesting. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you do in this book, um, I found as the reader, was you sucked me in, in just about every single chapter with the most beautiful descriptions and feel-good moments. And then with the absolute deft touch, you pulled the rug out from under me and my hand would rise to my mouth or my chest because something horrific was tiptoeing behind those beautiful moments. And one example that I can um, mention, because it happens fairly early on in the book, so it's not a spoiler for anyone listening, is with Gemma. And um, she's walking between the two plantations one day. It's a beautiful, sunny day, you know, blue skies, birds chirping. She's happily walking between these two plantations. She's holding some chicks in her hand and everything's Aww. beautiful and wonderful. And then there's the clip, clop, clip clop of the horse behind her and we oh, know <laughs> we know that that's not going to end well and I have to ask you are you prepared for the number of readers who are going to scream at you for keeping them on this roller coaster the whole way through the book because oh. you do it all the way through you you suck me in and then you pull that rug out again 
Oh my goodness. Well, I think that's good though. That's the kind of book I like to read. And and I definitely uh, write what I want to read. And I do think that in like cliffhangers, I love a good cliffhanger Mm -hmm. just because it keeps me reading. Anything that keeps me emotionally invested, I really, really love. And I think that, you know, you're talking about the character of LeBaron Carruthers, who is the overseer on the plantation. And I think important character to again to have that that visceral feeling of everything's beautiful Mm -hmm. um as an enslaved person and you're enjoying the day and your day isn't even yours um because you have no power over a person like LeBaron Carruthers who was the beginning of um the Ku Klux Klan in the United Mm -hmm. States his patty rollers patrollers were the men who banded together and uh, just uh, tortured the enslaved people and um, tried to scare them into submission. And of course, he on that in that scene that you're talking about is trying to intimidate her and make her kind of become his, you know, sex slave. And, um, you know, she has no power over that. And she she tries to deal with it the best way she can. But back then, you know, it was in his hands. She was based partly on a character who um, was an enslaved woman in North Carolina who lived in her aunt's attic in a coffin-sized room for um, two years. And her children were told that she ran away, but she was actually there Mm -hmm. hiding from a man who was trying to do a similar type thing, like a sexual predator. I really wanted to show that through LeBaron. And, um, you know, he's one of my favorite characters in a way because he just shows the oppressive nature of men at that time. He was a real danger for them. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, what he does to Gemma's friends and other people. Um, and he would have done that to her, too, if she hadn't been, you know, resourceful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For any writers that are listening to this podcast, this is a masterclass. <clears throat> Excuse me a masterclass of building tension and release and tension and release it. um, Yeah. I, I, as a writer myself, I appreciated that. um, And I recommend any writers to to have a look at it for that reason alone. Now um, we can't talk about your novel without talking about the research that's gone into it. And as we mentioned, Georgie is an historical figure and you first discovered her in 2000 when you were researching your novel, Lilac Girls. How long was it after that moment when you found her before you really decided to delve deeply into her life? Well, I spent a lot of time down in the archives, the former root cellar at the uh, Bellamy Faraday house, Caroline Faraday's um, summer home. I I knew about them since 2000 when I started going down there and researching. And Mm -hmm. 2016 is when Lilac Girls was published. And now all that time I knew about these women because Caroline kept everything. She was such a pack rat in a good way. And she had, you know, every dry cleaning ticket still down there, all organized (laughs) beautifully. And so I, I had read about Georgie and her sisters, but I hadn't gone, I hadn't really delved deeply. And, and when I did, I just, oh my goodness, fell in love with them. Georgie also wrote a, a book called Three Weeks at Gettysburg. I guess that's a bit of a spoiler, but um, <laughs> I ordered it from Amazon and it came and I swear 
it was as big as a deck of cards. It's this little tiny oh. book. Um, but it, it talks about her three weeks at Gettysburg, which was really, really helpful mm -hmm. in, in writing the book and going to Gettysburg, of course, um, and researching there was, you know, that's one of where one of our most famous battles happened. It was a real turning point for the Civil War because Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is very close to Washington and the South was trying to take Washington mm -hmm. like they still are. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, things that are still relevant. But um, so it was an important battle and um, Pickett's Charge, which I show in the book, is mm -hmm. um, also a really famous, famous battle. But seen through the eyes of a, an enslaved girl, it's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, during the research, you discovered what a lot of historians refer to as primary sources. These are first-hand accounts, actual letters that the sisters wrote. You mentioned um, at the top of this interview that you found a thousand letters that the sisters wrote, um, the books that they penned. And while that's fantastic in terms of it gives you a lot of material to work with, I wondered whether that hindered you in any way in terms of giving you the wriggle room to write the story that you wanted to write as opposed to sticking with historical fact. You know, I always love having the real, um, the truth. And one of my little tenets is when I know the truth, I, I use that because there's nothing that it just rings true. And people can tell, it's one thing that I'm, I'm learning that readers know, you know, just innately. If you're writing a scene that you think is boring, they know, it's, it's really funny. But when it comes to research, I, I think that um, it, it was always um, more fun in a way to use the real thing. Uh, the problem came with having so many letters and so many great scenes and real things that happened, it was an embarrassment of riches. It was really, really hard to choose. Mm -hmm. And um, the same thing kind of happened with Lilac Girls because I went to Caroline's archives in Paris and sat with a translator um, for three days and read all of her letters there, her French letters. And mm -hmm. that was the same thing. I, I don't know if you remember from Lilac Girls, but there was um, a thing called the April in Paris Ball where Wallace Simpson, uh, you know, the abdicated king's mm -hmm. um, yep. wife, comes up to um, Caroline Faraday and, um, you know, they talk and Caroline asks her for money to help the rabbits with and, and Wallace Simpson turns her down. I mean, that really happened. So it was, I kept finding things like that in Caroline's letters. Um, you know, too many of them almost because you can't use everything. And the same thing happened with this. There were so many good scenes, but some things just didn't kind of fit into what I was trying to, you know, when you're telling from one point of view character, you can't fit everything in. And all the sisters were doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it, it did. Um, it didn't really hinder me in terms of writing the story, but in terms of outlining it and, um, making it a cohesive narrative, um, there was almost too much to mm -hmm. put in. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that decision of what to leave out then, other than the ones that, you know, weren't relevant to the story? There would have even been a lot of things that were relevant to the story that you also had to leave out. How, how do you make that decision as the writer? 
You know, it's tough, especially when you're, when you have three different POV characters, you don't have all that room, but Mm. what I, what I would do is try it. And I, if there are writers out there that are listening, I think for me anyway, that's a really good way to do it. Uh, People talk about writer's block, but I always feel like for me, if, if I'm writing something and I feel blocked, I, I blame it on the material. I think, is this scene boring? Is this scene just not kind of, does it not have the tension in it? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they always say that you need a goal, conflict and disaster in your chapters. And if that's just not happening, I just, I move on to a different thing. I I think that um, that's just the way that I do it. And I I feel like um, it, it helps me kind of whittle down, you know, the really good stuff. Because sometimes, you know, you think, oh, that would make a great chapter or a scene. And then you try it and it doesn't. Or there's something that you think mm, that might be good. And it turns out to be amazing. So I'm I'm in the just try it, you know, the spaghetti against the wall, I guess, idea of, you know, try it. And if it's great, uh, but don't be so married to something um, and stuck on it that you can't say, you know what, I I worked on this for a day or two, but it's just not working. I love that analogy of the spaghetti on the wall. (laughs) That's a really good tip for any aspiring writers that might be listening. Um, When you're writing about real people from history, how conscious are you of doing that story justice? Or if, you know, for example, you found out something negative about Carol, uh, not Caroline, sorry, about Georgie, um, you know, were you okay to put that in or were you thinking, oh, but, you know, maybe her descendants will read this? You know, I, I write fiction and I don't have any real characters in my stories and I find, I find that a really safe place to sit because... <laughs> I don't even use real towns I make up my towns as well so nobody can say oh that shop isn't next to that shop on the main street so I'm (laughs) taking a page from your book smart or cheap I don't know Um, (laughs) but you know how conscious are you of the fact that you are writing about real people and and staying authentic to them yeah, very. And in fact, with Lilac Girls, I had trouble because my first editor, I, I used a, a freelance editor to begin with. She kept saying, you have to, you're, you're making Caroline Faraday kind of a, um, like a nun or, you know, I, I loved Caroline and respected her so much. I didn't give her flaws and bad things. So I had to go back and really work on that. And the same is true. I found happening again. And in the same with Lost Roses with um, Caroline's mother, because I loved these women so much. um, I didn't want to give them flaws, but I I had to. And with Georgie, I ended up having to give her flaws. But at the same time, uh, I, I really, I came across some things that with Caroline that I didn't put in because I just felt, you know, I'm, I'm privy to, it's a huge responsibility. I'm privy to all the private things um, that Caroline kind of entrusted me with. I felt like Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that she left her archives open to people to go in and research 
Um, I don't, maybe she didn't realize that I would be coming in there and looking at her life. So I felt like I really needed to protect certain things about her, which I did, and I always will. Um, and the same thing was true with um, the Woolseys, because things change. Things mm. happened back in the 1600s that, um, not the 1600s, the 1860s, yep. <laughs> um, that maybe today, you know, if, if yeah. taken the wrong context, you know, a comment here and there um, would be difficult. Um, so there were definitely a, a few things that I stayed away from just because I don't think that um, a, a current audience would understand in, in mm -hmm. the context of the 1860s. Mm -hmm. And with all of the research that you did with this novel was there anything that you discovered that really surprised you something that was really strange or interesting you know one of those little nuggets that just kind of blew you away you know it was mostly just the everyday I love the everyday mm -hmm. lifestyle things that you know we were talking about the meat on that they wore on their faces to make yes. it more beautiful um a couple of things like um Georgie wore um carpet skates what they called um they were roller skates that you that you would yes. wear inside. Um, I thought that was really interesting that they would roll around their houses in roller skates, uh, kind of like um, inline skates now, rollerblades, mm -hmm. um, almost exactly like that, which is so weird. And things like Anne May wears her cat in a little carrier. Um, they didn't have bustles then, but um, on the back of her hoop skirt, she she carried her cat in a little carrier mm -hmm. because I found out that in, in Paris they were doing that. And she always wanted to be, you know, very ahead of things. Also, a lot of the medical part of it really interested me. And um, I, I found surprising, like that they were vaccinating against things. Yes. Yeah, that threw me. That her. really threw me when that was in the book. That crazy. Yeah. I mean, just like today they were getting vaccinated and he vaccinates her on the ship. And uh, so things like that, the medical stuff. I mean, we all know that there were a lot of amputations mm -hmm. and how terrible that was, but to actually find out how they were performed and why, and that the doctors were drunk all the time when they did it. I mean, all of that really brought, brought it to life for me. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was surprising for me, and probably as an international reader, um, was to do with the border states during the Civil mm -hmm. War. So coming from Australia, you know, what I know of the Civil War is, is, is not much. Um, and to me, it's north and south. And that was it. You know, it was the north versus the south. And that's that's how it right. operated. Um, yeah. Yet where Anne May's um, plantation is, which is Maryland, you know, mm -hmm. and it was referred to as a border state. And th there was a lot of grey area there that I wasn't expecting. So her husband was fighting for the north, mm -hmm. but her brother was fighting for the south. Um, brother yeah, yeah yeah and 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 I found that really interesting and particularly with the husband because he's a plantation owner and has slaves he was fighting to free them I found I found a lot of contradiction in that which I wasn't expecting as somebody who oh, you know, who knows a little bit about the era but not not a lot yeah that was that was really interesting well, I'm glad you liked that. Yeah, Fergus actually wasn't the slave owner, though, when you think about it, Anne May owned She them. owned them, yeah. Yeah, which I think, um, you know, she keeps trying to remind him, you know, these are this is my house and my slaves. But um, yeah, he was from the North and she was from the South. 
And I loved that kind of um, conflict that was happening there. But yeah, he, he was fighting for the North. Maryland as a border state and Kentucky as well, they, um, they had slightly different rules because President Lincoln was afraid that if he wasn't more, um, if he didn't allow Maryland and Kentucky to keep their slaves, that they would become Confederate states, that they would move to the South. Mm-hmm. So he, and, and given that Maryland is right there, um, it, it, it abuts Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. He had to be really careful because if that became a Southern state, then the war's over, basically. Yeah. So yeah. he had to uh, be way more lenient and say, you can keep your slaves for now, whereas the other northern states um, had much um, more strict rules mm-hmm. for slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that made it really interesting. And also the fact that um, her beloved brother Harry marches off because he's from New Orleans, which is way down south. Yep. And he has other reasons for wanting to fight for the Confederacy. So I, I love how all that works. I, that is a spoiler, but um, I, I love how that all kind of goes down and, you know, makes things even worse for Anne sadly. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's one of the reasons I love reading historical fiction, because no matter how much you think you know about a particular era in history, I find reading historical fiction, there's always something you know, new to discover. Absolutely. I didn't really, I was a terrible history student. And so I really had to learn a lot very quickly about the Civil War. So um, I always figure if I'm interested, if I find something new that that I find um, compelling, I try and include it because I figure other people will too. Mm-hmm. But history in, in this country, Mary, was was taught in high school. I felt like it was a man's thing. Um, and it was all about the guns and the battles and the, mm-hmm. um, the guy stuff. Um, and I know that's kind of sexist, but then I went to a, an all girls school, um, my sophomore year, and I had a female history teacher and it just changed my life. I, you know, she taught from a completely different point of view mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I really, really liked history, but, um, I still missed a lot of the civil war stuff that I had to go back and, you know, bone up on. Now, through all of your novels, you've gone back into World War One, World War Two, and the American Civil War. So I'm wondering what's next? What historical area do you think you might tackle next, Martha? I'm so lucky that I get to write. You know, I went to Random House and said, I've gone back in time with these other books from Lilac Girls. Now I'd like to go ahead in time mm-hmm. and, and just look at what happened after Lilac Girls, that era um, because I found it really fascinating. And Lilac Girls stopped in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to kind of continue that a little bit because there were so many Nazis that were not brought to justice. And I wanted to kind of look at that in, uh, vis-a-vis uh, Ravensbrück and what happened there. So my next book is A Cold War. It takes place in the 50s. And about two women that uh, survive Ravensbrück, and one is an American, one's French, and they 
have suffered some PTSD at the camp. Let's put it that way, mm -hmm. put it mildly. And the American comes back to work in a US Army program that is bringing um, former Nazis, which I don't know if there was a thing yeah, yep. <laughs> um, the United States to work in the atomic bomb program and uh -huh. um, our space program. And so, but she's, she's looking for this man that did really bad things to her at the camp mm -hmm. and to this French girl. So they end up, um, the book goes all across the world from Rome to Paris to South America, um, hunting uh, Nazis. So that's, that's been a fun book to write. That's called the golden doves. And um, Ooh, so like that's that up next. Do you? Oh, I I'm do. So yeah. <laughs> no more flowers. We're on to birds. And um, then after that is it is an actual um, thriller suspense novel that is, ah. Uh, takes place in current day in my town. Uh, it, it's I live in Litchfield, Connecticut, but it in the book I say that it's uh, Liberty, Massachusetts, but it's my it's my town. Um, I didn't make it up like you do completely, which <laughs> I probably should have. But it's really scary, and but also I it's really fun to write a contemporary novel with a lot of um, you know I, I I deal with opioid addiction and um, mm -hmm. you know some current themes. Um, whilst being, um, it's a scary book and it takes place in my house. So I'm, I'm terrified to go in the basement, but <laughs> my husband says we may need to move because I've scared myself too badly, uh, but it's, it's been really, really fun writing. And that one comes out after Golden Doves. That's called The Girl on Windy Hill. Oh, so there you that's, go. that's where I am. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Martha, and I wish I could keep you for longer because there's so many other things that I'd like to ask, um, but you're we don't have to time. Hear me you're so good. <laughs> it's been so and fun. Oh, thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So um, the Sunflower Sisters by Martha Hall Kelly is out now in all of the good bookstores around Australia. And I think you can tell from um, the way I've been speaking with Martha, how much I think you should go and get this book if you haven't got it already. It's an absolute stunning um, novel of, of historical importance and modern importance as well, I think. So thank you so much for joining me, Martha. And um, maybe one day when borders are open and international travel is allowed again, um, we might cross paths in the literary world. Oh, I hope so. That would be so nice. I'll put it high on my bucket list. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Thank you so much for joining us today, Martha. Thanks, Sandy.